Ephesians 2, 11 through 19. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I appreciate the reminder of that text of the union of the people of God in Christ and the inclusion of the nations, which includes me. Uh, as a Gentile, apart from the cross of Christ, there's no part for us in the redemption that God provides. Of course, this was in God's plan from the beginning, which he announced to Abraham when he said, in you, I'll make you a great nation, and in you, I will bless the nations. Uh, and that's important as we come to this text that we're at in the book of John, chapter 12, this morning. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see that because some Gentiles have an interesting effect in the story at this point. You've probably heard the expression, timing is everything. <laughs> it's uh, especially true in uh, trying to be funny, apparently. Timing is everything. It's not just what you do or what you say, it's when you do it and when you say it. Uh, if you tried to play some music without timing, you would just have noise. You've probably had some experience with this in your life. Problem of timing. 
How do you know when the time is right? There's lots of different ways we try to figure it out. So maybe you're not particularly happy in your job and you're thinking about switching jobs, quitting this one, going to another one. The timing of that is important, isn't it? How do you know? Okay, now. Uh, or how do you know when is the right time to marry someone or to propose that idea to someone? Oh my goodness, what, what kind of tricky timing is involved in that? I mean, it might be generally about the right time. Your, your, your relationship has progressed to that point, but you don't want to do it if she's in a horrible mood or angry with you at the moment. So timing has a wide scope and a fine scope. How do we ever know when is the right time to do anything? Now, most of the time, of course, we don't even think about it that much. We just do whatever we think of to do, and we're, that's, that's all there is to that. Sometimes we have a very scheduled schedule. Some people are really good at scheduling. I am not one of those people. Some people are not really good at scheduling. How do you know when the time is right? Well, the reason I'm talking about all this, about timing is everything, is because Jesus says, I'm going to figure out how to turn off my dinging phone. Jesus says in this text, the time has come. And it's very interesting what sparks that statement in the story of the book of John. It's the oddest thing you would never expect it. The, the hour has come, Jesus says. And we're going to talk about for what. Let's just read this text. I'm going to start in verse 19 of John chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you might want to open it up and read through this with us. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, 
there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, I don't know about you, but this is one of those texts in the Bible when Jesus is speaking that he seems to be speaking in some kind of secret code. And he makes this series of statements. It's hard at first to see how they even go together. How does this thought lead to that thought? And this begins before he says anything because... Andrew and Philip come to him and say, hey, there's these Greeks, some Gentiles here. They want to talk to you. And this is what he says. The, sun, the hour has come for this. He's not even responding to the issue, so it would seem. And what is it with Greeks? Why, why is it even important to mention that these People were Greeks, were Gentiles. This is the word Greek that the New Testament uses to talk about uh, anyone who's not Jewish. So they're they're not necessarily from the country of Greece, but they're Greek-speaking people who are not Jews. What's that got to do with anything? And John really kind of makes sort of a deal out of it. Well, I think this is why I started with verse 19, where these Pharisees said to one another, hey, we're getting nowhere here. Look, the world has gone after him. And this is one of John's sort of literary devices to use the speech of people to say something they weren't thinking of when they said it. You know, like when Caiaphas said, it's better for one man to die for the nation. That sort of thing. Or when Mary anoints Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair, she doesn't. I don't think she had the intention of anointing Jesus for burial, but that's what Jesus attributed to. And John does this a lot, where he has somebody say something and they don't really know what they're really saying. And here, the whole world, and John uses a word for world here that isn't the word you would use if you were just trying to say everybody. Everybody. He uses the world as in the nations. The nations have gone after him. And then the very next thing he says, and then there were some Greeks there for the festival, for the Passover. And there were some Gentile people who were interested in Judaism. And so they could come to the Jewish feast of the Passover. Now, they couldn't go in the temple. There were certain limited areas, even to this day, in that area. But there were limited areas, and if, you, if a Gentile went in there, uh, he had to be killed. There was a court of the Gentiles. They could go there. So they could participate, but they weren't really part Oh, that is what that text in Ephesians was talking about. They were alienated from the people 
And they were consequently alienated from God. Now, uh, a Gentile person could become what was called a proselyte. They could actually convert to being a Jew. There's a process in the law of Moses for that. Uh, and if they did so, then they were full-fledged Jews. They could participate in the whole everything. Anyway, so the Pharisees say the world's going after him, and then John says, and so there were these Gentiles. And they came to Philip. Now, Philip, you might not know, is a Greek name. And he's from Bethsaida in Galilee, which is kind of a border town. In other words, Philip looked like the guy they could approach. And the question is, will Jesus talk to Gentiles? Jesus is a righteous Jewish person. He's not really supposed to associate with Gentiles, maybe. So will Jesus receive us? So they go. And apparently it's a big enough deal for Philip not to just say, oh yeah, come on in. But he goes to Andrew. And Andrew and Philip decide to propose this idea to Jesus. So, from this point on, we have no idea what happened to these Greeks. That's the end of their part in the story. Andrew and Philip come and they say, hey, these Greeks want to talk to you. We have no idea whether they actually talk to Jesus or not. Is this bad storytelling on John's part? Here's what happens. Jesus says, the time has come. The hour has come. This is a pivotal statement in the book of John. Up till now, the hour is not yet. Several times in the book of John, Jesus says something like, the hour, it is not the hour. The hour has not come. It's not time. Not yet. Chapter 2, chapter 4, twice, chapter 7, chapter 8, the hour has not yet come. What hour are we talking about? Here he says, the hour has come. This is a shift. In fact, from here on, the hour is upon us. The hour is upon us. The time is now. And something about the fact that these Gentiles came looking to see Jesus flip the switch. Because, you see, what Jesus, the hour of Jesus, is about taking the promises of God among the people of God, the people of Israel, and uh, distributing them to the nations. So when these Greeks come, I, you know, all that we read in Ephesians, which was all in the plan of God from the beginning, 
Okay, the world is coming after him. Now is the time. Now it's time. Also, in the course of the story, when the Greek interested people, the Greek worshipers, come to Christ, the statement of the Pharisees, the world is going after him, is taking on an irreversible nature. The world is going after him. There's no limit to his fame, to his popularity, to his political appeal. The, this is driving us to the cross. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, his fate is sealed. And it's sealed in this sort of political sense where people are going after Jesus, go, whoa, do you believe this? Jesus raised a man from the dead. People are coming, even the Gentile worshipers are turning from the temple to Jesus. Things are going out of control. Something's got to be done. All of this is playing in the mind of Christ, and he says, now's the time. The hour has come. But we need to ask the question, what hour? Well, he says it right here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, imagine you're Andrew and Philip and you're standing there or you're one of the other disciples who might have been standing around and Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I imagine you would say to yourself, all right, here we go. And you're hearing the echo from Sunday of Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And you're hearing that. And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. They have a certain idea. And as we know, that was not God's idea. They're looking for the wrong Messiah the actual Messiah is the one they're dealing with. So he says, truly, truly. Amen, amen is how this is in Greek. Here's what it means. Here's something you can utterly rely on. I am telling you the truth now. Pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, and remains, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What is he talking about? We have the benefit of knowing what he's talking about because we have read the rest of this. Imagine you're John listening to this, or Philip, or Andrew, or Peter listening to this. And Jesus is talking about seeds dying and bearing fruit. Well, he says, whoever loses, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world, 
He's talking about dying. Now, at this point, it's kind of, he's sort of sneaking it in there. He's saying it without saying it all that clearly. But what you can see is there's going to be a disconnect between where Jesus is headed and what everyone else expects of him. The disciples, everyone, is looking for a king messiah, a reigning prince, a a rebel against Rome, a great vindicator of Israeli righteousness. And Jesus is headed for the cross. And there's going to, Jesus is literally going to come apart from everyone on his way to the cross. Everyone. No one sticks with him. Maybe John. Maybe you could make a case for John. Nobody else. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless I die, there's no fruit. That's what Jesus says. Now, how is that connected to being glorified? Well, what we're going to see in the book of John also is not only have we made this transition from not yet, not yet, not yet time, not yet time, not yet time, now, now, from this moment, this is a pivotal moment in the story of the book of John, we have switched from it's not yet time to it's time, and we have switched to uh, the glory And what we're going to see as we go forward in the book of John is glory attached to the cross. In John 17, I can't help it, I'm looking ahead a little bit here. In John 17, Jesus prays, the opening sentence of his prayer is, glorify the Son. And he's not talking about shining like he does on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's talking about the cross. Here is the first time he connects glory to his death. We've seen this sort of alluded to in chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, you'll see it. Lift up. That's a word that simultaneously means crucify and exalt. You'll see this throughout the book of of John. Also, you see it in Isaiah. The Son of Man is lifted up. And there, it's both both, uh, an execution and an exaltation. The glory of Christ... First of all, is in his heroic death. Sometimes we think the cross is the path to glory. But John is teaching us, well, that is true, but also the cross is itself the glorification of the Son of Man. The seed dies to bear much fruit. That's 
death now, fruit later, but also the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be exalted, to be crucified. And so, lifted up, exalted, glorified. The death of Christ is a great glory. It is the greatest act of heroism ever performed by any person. So Jesus is, for the first time, connecting all these things together in this statement, the hour has come, which is sparked by this recognition from these Gentiles coming to see him. And then, he generalizes it. It's as though in this statement, whoever loves his life loses it, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. It's as though he's saying, and you too. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. Now he's not just talking about himself, but whoever. What Jesus is doing in the work of the cross is opening our ingrown souls. Martin Luther said the problem of sin is the problem of being turned in on oneself to always be self-oriented. And I think when Jesus talks about loving our lives, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about clinging to our lives. We're talking about our own ownership of ourselves. My life is mine. And Jesus is saying, look, that's a way to lose your life. Life is not sustained by clinging to it. By possessing it for myself. The human person is designed to be oriented to others. not to be self-contained. First of all, to be absolutely oriented toward God and in that to find the resource to, to love one another. You cannot keep your life by hanging on to it. Now, I can imagine someone saying, yeah, well, everyone loses it. Everyone dies. Where's the news? Well, the news is this. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's the happy announcement. That's the unexpected thing. It's no surprise to say, look, if you love your life, you're going to lose it. Well, I'm going to lose it whether I love it or not. To say clinging to your life isn't going to spare your life is not a surprise, but to say 
not clinging to it is going to sustain it is a surprise. And Jesus has been announcing throughout the book of John, through this whole story, he has been announcing the gift of eternal life from God. He who, <laughs> he who believes in him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but has everlasting life. This is the great announcement of the good news, the existence of this eternal life. And what Jesus is saying here is, you know, just like me, the seed that goes in the ground and bears much fruit. Same, same, same. Now, any sacrifice I make isn't going to redeem anyone or reconcile anyone to God. It's not the same exact fruit that Jesus has, but he's saying, look, this is the transformation of the gospel, the transformation from me is mine, is mine, is mine. That prying open of a person, that exposure, that uh, reconciliation to God that has the effect of generating love toward my fellow man. That is what is going on in this text. The sacrifice of Christ, this is the fruit it will produce. People in this world will not care for themselves, but will have eternal life shared how do you how, how is that possible I want to ask whoever loves his life I want to say who doesn't I do. <laughs> I believe if you're honest with yourself, so do you. I've been a Christian for, well, a long time, more than 50 years. For many of those years, I've been sort of working hard on it. I wouldn't claim that I don't love my life in this world. How is this possible? Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. I could paraphrase this like this. To serve me requires following me. 
Now think of who he's speaking to. Andrew and Philip, perhaps other disciples, maybe even these Greek guys who came to see him. To serve me requires following me. Where is it he has just said he's going? He's the seed that must fall into the ground and die. And now he's saying, you too. It is as though Jesus has determined in his mind to make everyone go away from him. He is raising the bar so high to serve me, you must follow me. And where I am is where my servant will be. And where has he said he's going? If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, I'm stuck. Here's the only possible path through this statement. The love of Christ given to me with no requirement whatsoever will transform me to make these things so. That is the only possible way. The love of Christ expressed in his death if I see it, will be so attractive that I will go with him no matter what, no matter where. The worst thing that I can possibly imagine is not having him. I will die before I will let him go if I see his love as it is. That's the only way. This does not come naturally. This is the powerful work of the Spirit of God in the heart of the believer. And it's a work in progress. That's the only way. And if I see it, my life is only, has value to me only as an expression of his love, which would be willing to make any sacrifice for the sake of his glory. That's, there's no other path out of this text Jesus is not letting us have him as just some kind of good guy we can 
follow his moral example and be better people. He's talking about what we all call these days dying to self. Well, let me tell you, dying to self is putting it too nicely. Dying to self. As though I can flip some sort of mental switch in my head and I've died to myself. Are you crazy? No. This is only, only possible because the love of Christ compels it. We are not naturally sacrificial. But when the Son of Man is lifted up and we see the glory of the cross of Christ and the unbounded depth of his love for us demonstrated in that act, that sacrifice that reconciles me to the living God, I see the prize, the prize, and I will pay any price to have it. Now that doesn't mean all of us are going to, you know, become martyrs. But it means any of us could. If I see his love, this makes sense to me. Apart from the good grace of God, the free gift with no requirements whatsoever, there's no possible way I can get to this. I can try to follow this like it's some kind of rule. <laughs> I can't even follow the don't lie rule. How am I going to follow the give my life a sacrifice rule? The only way is to really actually see Christ. John talks about this in 1 John chapter 3, talking about the blessed hope. We mentioned this last time, right? That blessed hope, if, if we could only see what we will be when we see Christ in person, we will be like him, transformed like him. Jesus is saying that here, where I am, my, that's where my servants are. Now, this sounds like it involves a good deal of suffering, and that might actually be true. But here's the thing. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, his commandments are not burdensome. I never make a real sacrifice for the gospel that I do not make with joy. Jesus, it says, <laughs> for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus was not unhappy to be the seed, 
that falls into the earth and dies. I pray that we will see Christ. And this will have this transformative effect in our lives. So that when people meet us, they meet something very strange. I kind of like, I think, how people reacted when they met Jesus. Like, wow, what is it about that guy? He's so giving. I pray that in this fellowship of believers, in the church everywhere, that this love will transform us in this exact way. Not because we're being obedient to some commandment, but because we have been changed by how God has treated us. It's a world of difference. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. Father, we give you thanks for your amazing love toward us in Christ. Thank you for our union with him. Father, we ask for that power of the Spirit to point our eyes at the Savior, to see him, to know him for real. Lord, clarify our vision of Jesus. Lord, uh, we recognize him. We honor him. We want to be with him. There's no better place. We'll give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.